What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads. Enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants. And they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp Internal Data 2021. Based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Results may vary. Now here we go. It's providing quality service value. People come in the door and they're met with a smile and they leave. They know what they're going to get. It's like, why do people still go to like Starbucks or somewhere? They know what they're going to get when they go in the door. We try to create the consistency so people, when they come in the door, they know what they're going to get and they're going to be happy when they leave. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. What does growth look like for restaurants moving forward? From my vantage point, things are looking a lot different. Restaurateurs are getting savvy and dynamic, mixing a variety of business models. And few exemplify this more than Craig Blum. Johnny's Donuts is brick and mortar and mobile, retail and catering. And there's much more on the horizon. Today we chat with Craig about his dynamic restaurant model and how it evolves from here. Early on, probably when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I started working at Jacopo's in Beverly Hills, which was kind of the crown jewel of pizzerias, you know, the only ones in that heyday that actually really serviced the Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Westwood area. And it was kind of sexy. And so it was like kind of my first introduction into the world of food and how food has this opportunity to really touch people's lives. I don't think I really got that until... I had the opportunity to be part of the opening team for the first U.S. Hard Rock Cafe and watching Peter Morton at work. And then also he mentored me. He took me under his wing and then his team took me under their wing and taught me the industry and how it worked. And I really got an opportunity to see how being of service and creating this experience really made a difference in people's lives. He was doing something that was so unique because he was providing this like exciting experience, but he was also giving them a product that was superior to most things you could find out there. I was really impressed by that. It was quality, it was service, it was value, it was all the key points really he touched and did it effortlessly. So that was kind of like where I learned how to be a restaurateur. Let's unpack that a little bit. So when you say that you learned how the industry really works, What were those lessons? What were those fundamentals that you were taught in those early days that you carried with you? It wasn't really about the bottom line. I didn't learn about what the P&L looked like, financials. That wasn't what was interesting to me. I grew up with ADHD and I really didn't have the patience to kind of go through the process. But I think what it was that I really learned was really how to make a difference. So it was about the customer experience, which is something that I really carry with me today. It doesn't matter 
if I'm selling donuts or I'm selling pizza or whatever it is, it's really overall about the customer experience. And the food is important, but to me, the food is secondary. What are the essential elements of that customer experience that you learned about and that you've carried with you? Going back to the days of the Hard Rock Cafe, the experience was people walked in the door and they had this like visual experience, this kind of emotional experience, and then they were kind of brought through the process and they left leaving feeling like they had a mini vacation from their life. And that's kind of where I've learned how the restaurant business differs because you can make a difference in somebody's day, in their moment, what they're going through. And coming back to donuts, it's like with what we do, we have an ability to make smiles. And when somebody comes in and they're feeling crappy and they leave and they got a smile on their face, it's like we won. And I really believe that. Let's talk about the path. So you're working with Hard Rock, uh, mid-90s, late-90s, early-2000s. You continue on this path. In 2010, you decide to start your own restaurant, a donut shop. And I'm curious to know, what was that thought process? I'm sure that it certainly didn't look fun a lot of the time, especially for the owners you worked for, right? Especially with Hard Rock, so much, so many growing pains, right? So many issues scaling out. What made you decide to do it on your own? Well, if we back up just a little bit, I was with the Hard Rock back in 1982. And that's when Peter first opened up Beverly Hills or Beverly Center. And I was there for a few years. And then I went off to manage restaurants in LA. So I was part of the opening team for all the chopsticks restaurants in Los Angeles. I went to go work for Authentic Cafe, which was on Beverly Boulevard. So those were like kind of my intro. I always had a desire to moved to Hawaii and opened a restaurant. So I did that and took me a while. And it was just like one of those things I had to do. And I moved there. I lived on Maui, took me a few years and I got the restaurant open. It was a cafe on the Northwest shore and it was phenomenal. It was such a great experience. You know, a lot of growing pains, a lot of speed bumps, a lot of mistakes, things like that. But ultimately I realized that you have a dream and you're able to kind of walk through that and achieve that. So to me, with all the speed bumps and the things that I ran into, at the end of the day, it was an ultimate success for me. And so you decide to start your own brand, Johnny's Donuts. I'm curious, before we even dig into that, why start your own brand? Why not just buy a Dunkin' franchise? It's not my style. I didn't go at it to open a donut business. I went out to open an experience that was tied into what I believed in. And so for me... I started a pizza crust company when I moved to the Bay Area back in the late 90s, early 2000s called John Doe. John Doe was a pizza crust company that was born out of frustration because I wanted to open a pizza restaurant and I couldn't find locations. And so I started test marketing pizza crust and people were like, well, just sell the crust. This stuff's amazing. So I did. I started making it in a little kitchen. I started selling it to local yacht club, then suddenly the Hyatt started picking it up, and then all the Marriott, Westons, like all of a sudden I found that I had this like product that I was making, and I was doing it in a little bakery in San Francisco. So I moved from that process, I built that company into a nationally distributed pizza dough company called John Doe. We sold it in, in Gelson's, Wegmans, Whole Foods, Wild Oats, Gourmet Garage, 
everywhere from here to New York and in between. And then I sold that company in early 2000s when my daughter was born. And then I really wanted to do a food truck. So the idea for Johnny Donuts really was more of a pizza food truck. And I couldn't figure out how to make the numbers work. I built a financial model and I really wanted to see it succeed. And as we kept running this model, we just couldn't make the numbers work. And I was talking to, I think it was Matt, who runs a lot of the food carts down in Los Angeles, Matt Geller. And he was saying, you know, you got X amount of time from womb to tomb to get your products out to keep people's attention. And so with that in mind, I couldn't make those numbers work. And I just said to myself, I have had donuts on the menu and I was more excited about the donuts than I was about the pizza, honestly. Uh And I just said, you know what, if this doesn't work, I'm going to do a donut truck. And literally within a few days after making that decision, it all started to fall into place and went down to Armenko, built a truck and basically in 2013 kind of launched this business into the Bay Area with the concept. So getting back to your question about why not just buy a franchise, I had been working with this flour mill and really understood the nuances behind doughs and flour. That was my background. It's what I had been doing for a number of years previous. And I wanted to get into really what makes donuts taste so bad and how I could get back to culturally an amazing product that wasn't like, we're not trying to be fancy. We're just trying to be really good and classic and hit those places where people remember these donuts when they were a little kid. I'm curious, over the last 10 years, you guys have scaled. And if you look at that, let's call it the 2010 to 2015 swing. Like that was the big era, the boom for artisan donuts, artisan cupcakes, artisan breads. And you watched all of these brands come out and then you watched most of them collapse in on themselves. Mm -hmm. Either they grew too fast or there just wasn't staying power. When you look back at that first truck and all the growth that you've seen since then, what decisions do you think you made in the early days that gave you the staying power that you have today? You know, I think early on, I developed the foundation for the company. A lot of times you can think about starting a company. It's like, buy the truck, get out there and sell donuts, right? Right. What I did through this iteration was I brought in a CFO. We built a financial model. We figured out what would work. We took the steps. So the time it took me from concept to actually delivery was a number of years that I researched the industry. I worked with Matt Cohen from Off the Grid. He taught me about the food industry. I went down to LA. I worked on some trucks down there just to get an idea how it felt. I was determined to become a student of what this industry was really about. So that in itself really helped me that when I get to the point where we're about to launch this product, I was ready for it. So that coupled with the product itself, there was really nobody out there doing what we did. And a lot of luck too. how we were found. I originally hoped to one day be able to service places like Apple and Google and Facebook and the big campuses. And literally before I even opened, we were approached by Apple and said, hey, can you guys do an event for us? I didn't have a permit. I didn't have anything. We weren't even ready to go yet. And I'm like, you know what, dude, we're completely booked up for the next three weeks. So I could take you out for that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I wanted them to be one of our clients, but I didn't think they would be our first client. And a few days later, we ended up doing an event for Salesforce. And right after that, we did an event for Airbnb. 
And so what I realized, there was this missing niche in this world for like treat seekers looking for good products. And I understood logistics. I'd been in the catering world. I understood how to make all that work. So there was the business part of it that they really appreciated. That in itself has allowed us to scale up at a much quicker rate. So for most of us, the idea is that you open a brick and mortar, that you buy your first food truck, maybe you lease it out, and you just start selling food. And if you're really trying to make money, you're not going to make it one donut at a time, right? So the way that you were able to scale your operation was through volume, through high volume, through having multiple revenue streams, through using the trucks and the bricks and mortars to build your brand reputation so that you could then go sell at scale, right? Correct. And they work off of each other. So, for example, up here in the Bay Area, we had a power outage and all of Marin County was completely shut down. But we have trucks. So in that moment, our shops don't have any power, but our trucks roll up and we're able to service the community outside with lines around the block for people coming to get coffee. That is how we're able to kind of shift and pivot in times that become challenging. That's what our business model is really about is being of service to the community and finding ways in times of challenge or even in times of prosper, what we can do to make a difference. Now, talk to me about the transition from, not even the transition, almost a pivot or just another vertical from food trucks to brick and mortar. What was the idea there? Well, we didn't even have a transition because we built the brick and mortar to service the truck. So basically the brick and mortar was built And I had no idea that that place was even going to take off. We built that shop to make the donuts for the trucks. And people wanted us to open the storefront. We weren't even open to the public. And we finally just wrote on the board, hey, we're opening from 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And I thought we'd be donating a lot of donuts at the end of the day. Truth is, we had a line out the door from 7 o'clock on until we sold every single thing we could possibly sell out of that shop. And I realized that here's a whole nother opportunity that I didn't really realize. Talk to me about profitability. You're busy. There are a bunch of busy businesses out there that have great food, great drinks, great service. They go out of business every day because they lack profitability. Talk to me about how profitability is baked into your business model. Well, whatever we do, whether we're doing a catering event, opening a store, we build our financial model first. We run it through our gross profit model. If we're doing an event, we want to make sure that we're hitting certain metrics before we even roll the trucks and build the team to go do the events. Same thing with our shops. We just signed a deal on a new shop, but we had to really run the model to make sure it works. Right now with the labor world, the way it is, we're having to retool. We're having to think of ways that we can get really creative, keeping product quality high, service high, but at the same time being able to cut labor while raising wages. It's really challenging. Right now is really a hard time. So profitability is really challenging. We had another store in San Francisco that we shut down two weeks ago that we'd been trying to close for a couple of years. And we finally were able to get out of that and move to another location that we were going to be opening in about three months. Talk to me about your day-to-day role and how it's evolved over the last 10 years. Day-to-day. I mean, when I started this business, I'm up at three in the morning, driving the trucks to the shop out on the road, moving stuff around. I mean, I was like doing everything, tool belt on. The only thing I really didn't do was make the donuts every day. It's like, that's not my forte. I did every single thing you can possibly think of. 
and then I'd go home and pass out on the floor. So it was like my family <laughs> couldn't believe what was going on. It just took off. I mean, it was like, I liken it to Malibu being out at uh, third point and no one's out there. Everyone's somewhere else. And you see this wave coming and you were like, I got this. That's how it felt to me. Like I got this and there's nobody around. And this piece of it took off and we've been riding ever since with all the challenges with the pandemic and everything that's come up, we've had to really make a lot of pivots. And at the same time, I feel like we're staying true to our mission. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help you take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. When you look at labor and when you look at supply chain, and there are a thousand reasons for it, but there's a cap on what people are willing to pay for tacos, for a donut, right? Like there are certain items that like if they are priced too high, a cupcake is in the same boat, right? That people will opt out if the price, and yet you find yourself in a position, especially in San Francisco, where labor costs more and more and more and cost of goods continues to increase as well. How do you reconcile that? How do you have that conversation with your customers? Well, thankfully, it hasn't really been an issue. However, we're running into that issue right now where we're trying to think about how do we do that through being transparent. I think we're not one to cut the quality of our product to make things happen, but I feel like we're kind of pushing the limit as far as how much we really want to charge somebody for a donut. That is the challenge. I mean, those are the questions. I mean, the last place to go is to raise the prices. And I say that because that's the lowest hanging fruit. I think it's an opportunity right now to really reevaluate our systems and how we operate. And if we can make those pieces smoother and more efficient, then we don't need to look at the pricing to raise the prices. I think raising the prices is the last resort. And I feel like our team is really good at stopping, taking a look and trying to see what we can do to be better. And I'm sure it also comes down to your relationship with your vendors as well. And I know that you pride yourself on having long-lasting relationships with mm -hmm. local vendors. How did you cultivate those relationships and what has been the benefit from those relationships, especially over the last couple of years? Well, I mean, the main staple is our flour. I've used, you know, Central for over 20 years and they know their stuff. They know their shit. They're good at what they do. That relationship has been key and critical because if things change, we need to be able to collaborate with them in order to solve problems. Right now, our problem of like trying to scale up, they're part of that process to help us figure out how we can reformulate and do things that 
become more efficient as you're scaling up numbers, especially in baking. It's such a science. And so you run into issues with absorption rates and things like that that need somebody who's an expert at to kind of help you figure it through. Our other vendors like Clover's, our dairy, and then we have various produce vendors, Marin Sonoma, that really help us stay on track. If there's any issues that come up, they're always willing to work with us. Talk to me about the way your business model has changed from, let's say, the first truck and the first brick and mortar to the last truck and the last brick and mortar. What lessons did you learn in past openings that you've internalized and have altered the way you do business moving forward? You know, first shop, super bootstrappy, super scrappy. That was really how we did it, right? Always cutting where we can, being super self-conscious. Second shop, no. Bank loan, money, investing, went for the full Monty. Bad choice. <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I think everybody has their second shop that's a disaster, I guess. I don't know. It was just like one of those things where it's like, I felt invincible. I'm riding the wave. I felt like, wow, I got this. And wow, people are going to come pounding on my door and it's going to be amazing. And you get in your head so far ahead of where I really was. So when it came to fruition, we opened the door. It was just a lot of money to spend on opening a donut shop. Subsequently, the next shop didn't do that time, you know, and that shop is more profitable. We look for opportunities in repurposing and reusing. I think at the end of the day, the scrappier you get, the better you are. If it doesn't translate to dollars and cents, whether it's, you know, aesthetics are really important and the branding is really important. And at the same time, sometimes designers and architects can kind of go over the top and start yeah. pitching. You start to buy the sizzle rather than the steak. Talk to me about marketing. I see your marketing. I see your brand, your iconography. You guys do a really good job. I would assume that you've gotten better over time. What I'm looking at is like the polished work of over a decade of effort. But what did it look like in the beginning? And what has been your marketing strategy? What has worked? What have you doubled down on? What did you do that didn't work? And what does it look like moving forward? That was 13 questions. Go. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, marketing is an ever-changing process. Right now, I'm looking to kind of reimagine as far as not change the branding, but just kind of get creative on ways to really get our brand out there and be seen. I think in this digital world, from the time we started in 2013 to now, it is completely different. Back then, Facebook was the way to go, right? That's where you're posting, you're doing all this stuff, you're getting a lot of likes. And then it's kind of pivots to Instagram. And Instagram is a very static imagery process. And now what we're learning is we have to get more into more interesting content. I find that we get more interaction on either behind the scenes where people can kind of get a look as to like what the operations look like or what's going on behind the scenes or kind of the food porn process. And both of those are great, but just some of the same static imagery can get kind of boring and people just kind of pass over it. So that itself has changed in just the last couple of years with the pandemic and TikTok and everything else that's out there. We're having to reinvent how do we want to do this, right? I think that I want to get out there and show people how to make donuts. I want to create a channel on bringing people into the process, even into my kitchen, 
bring them to my house, into my kitchen and show them how we make donuts at home and become more accessible that way. I think you're 100% right. I think that when you look at the people you follow on social media, it's not because they're putting out highly polished content, right? It's because they're putting out stuff that you find valuable and they're doing it with consistency. And I do agree with you that the behind the scenes and the how-tos and the cooking and cocktail demos, they go a really long way with people. I think that for years in our industry, there was concern that if I show you how to do it, you'll do it on your own. But I mean, I've been a restaurateur for over 20 years now, and I still can't cook, which is proof that <laughs> having access to the information yeah. certainly doesn't inspire someone to do it independently. Yeah, I agree. It's like I look at the concept and sometimes it's inspiring and it inspires me to do something different. But sometimes that's kind of what cookbooks do. So it's like a moving cookbook where you can be, look at that and go, that looks really good. But you know what I would do? I'd do it a little differently. And so that's just the way it is. I think that our recipes for what we do for our donuts, we were inspired by somebody else, right? Our sure. recipes came from a cookbook from the 1920s. And we kind of took that and ran with it and figured out how to make it our own. When you look at growth, especially coming out of the pandemic, what does it look like for you? Is it more brick and mortars? Is it more trucks? Are you going to stay local? Are you going to go regional? Are you going to franchise out? What are you going to do, Craig? So the plan right now is to really get this next store up and running and solidify the foundation. We'll probably do that for the next year and a half. Get everything running. We're building a central kitchen in one of our shops. Get our hub and spoke really kind of really well oiled. At that point, we'll have a really good idea of how to duplicate this process. I think food trucks and brick and mortars, they go hand in hand. So as we duplicate into other regional locations, we'll take what we learn in the next year and a half and make that kind of part of our process. So that's the goal right now. I don't believe in franchising. I would rather poke my eyes out with needles than have franchisees that I'm managing and diluting the brand itself. I am going to grow this company as big as I can and make this company, put it in front of people and people embrace us in certain geographic locations. That would be awesome. Let's go back to talking about events and catering, because I think that it speaks to the marketing conversation. And I also think it speaks to something kind of aspirational within all of us as restaurateurs. When I had my fine dining concept, I wanted to make a lot more money than we were. And I figured out after two or three years of trying to do it through increasing dinner service sales yeah, that I could add a million dollars to the top line simply through events at a better margin. And it was one of the few things that I found that if I exerted effort in, there was an immediate return on investment, right? I would reach out to five dozen office managers and I would book three or four events that would total over $100,000 between those individual events. And so I saw massive opportunity in that. But a lot of people don't know, and I could tell everyone how to market a fine dining concept in that way locally, but with a more casual concept. How are you marketing for events and catering for Johnny's? You know, honestly, it's been word of mouth. That's just been the way it's happened. We've tried to think of marketing concepts for us to get out there and really get in front of people. However, we haven't had the time because we've been so busy. And so, our catering, what's so 
beautiful about catering, and I'm sure you understand, is that you're building your proposals to people with all your costs in mind. So you sure. already know what your gross profit is when you're coming out the door. Our catering department has always taken the approach of, sure, we'll do that. And then we go back and retool and figure out how to do it. For example, Google approached us a few years ago when they launched the Google Home Mini. And they said, hey, we're doing this concept, small as a donut, powerful as a superhero. We need a local donut shop to really help us. Can you guys do that? We're like, sure. <laughs> what, do you guys, what do you guys need? They're like, well, it's going to be over a few days. It was about maybe about 10,000 donuts. We're like, okay. And then, you know, do you guys have the ability to do any ground management on location? We're like, sure. So we took over the entire logistics for this event. And it was huge. Like they built a donut shop in the middle of San Francisco and had thousands of people lined up to go through this where they would either win Google Home Mini or get a box with donuts in it. And we basically had no idea how to do this. We'd never done anything of this magnitude before. And we just winged it and nailed it to the point where they were like, this was amazing. You guys rock. And that's how we do it. We just say yes. And then we figure it out. And so now we do events that are like upwards of two, three, four, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 donuts at a time. And we also do like outside lands. We do bottle rock. We build kitchens on site. So the logistics of how we operate is whatever our client is looking for, we figure out if it's even feasible for us to nail it. And if it is, then we just take it and run. How's the menu evolved over the last decade? We've added certain things that people really want. So we've added a vegan option, which is incredible. And it's like a roasted sweet potato raised donut. You would never know it was vegan. And it's phenomenal. We've added a wheat-free option. We do a fritter that's incredible, that's wheat-free. We have crotos, we do crullers. So it's like we stay within these classic lines of donuts. And then at the same time, we're trying to really appeal to people's dietary concerns as much as possible. We just finished a contest where we said, hey, name our next flavor. We have National Donut Day coming up this Friday. And we had about 500 people put in their ideas and we chose one. And we're going to announce that, I think, on Friday when we launch the new donut. So we add seasonal flavors. We use what's local. We make homemade jams. We do all sorts of stuff. I think we don't deviate too much from that. We don't try to do any Captain Crunch or any wild flowers or anything like that. But the evolution has been more about solidifying who we are as a company, more than trying to be more than who we are. I'm curious because I'm sure everybody has opinions. How do you determine what is a good idea? What should we add to the menu? How involved is the conversation around that? How long did it take you to put a gluten-free option on the menu after considering it or a vegan option? They took about six months for those products to hit the menu. And that was just through trial and error, trying to find the right product and get it right. And it's evolved over the years. We tweak our product as we move along. Sometimes it might be a little different coming out. So we have to kind of adjust. But when it comes to really launching a new product, it really depends on what it is. If it's a new flavor, maybe it'll take a week or two to get to the menu. But if it's something that's changing the base of the donut, it might take a little bit longer because we want to really get the right 
flour dialed in, the right recipes. And my production manager, he's kind of the executive chef for the company, really comes up with ideas. I don't think he sleeps. I think he's always coming up with ideas and things. You know, we did a, a tangine donut last summer, which was so great with mango and the chili spice over the top. It was amazing. So it's just getting creative, throw stuff out there. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, we might tweak it or just say next. How do you maintain relevance over the course of a decade? I mean, you think about restaurants and it's like we work in dog years, right? So like one year in a restaurant is like 10. The average shelf life of a restaurant is what, a year, two years. How do you maintain relevance within a community for over a decade? Well, I think donuts have maintained relevance over quite a long time. And so what we're doing is we're not just about donuts. It's creating a sense of community. So what we're trying to do is embed ourselves into the community and be a part of what's going on. And so with that, it's kind of like nostalgia and families and watching people grow up. And that's the part that keeps you relevant. I mean, that's a really good question because we still do off the grid at Fort Mason, right? And there's eight to 10,000 people and we have really long lines there. We've been doing that for eight years. So people still love what we're doing. We try to mix it up a little bit, but I think it's just, it's the experience again. They get to the front of the truck and they're met with a smile and people are like excited to see them and they have an experience. So I think that might be one of the main keys as I think about it is just the overall customer experience. That might be the relevancy. How do you keep people coming back? Do you guys have a retention strategy? Are you emailing your collecting data, emailing your customers, texting them? Well, yeah. I mean, we have a database of our customers. We probably have over 100,000, maybe plus. I don't even know. It's a lot of people. Now, we run newsletters, but that's not really how we get people to keep coming back. It's providing quality service value. People come in the door and they're met with a smile and they leave. They know what they're going to get. It's like, why do people still go to like, Starbucks or somewhere, they know what they're going to get when they go in the door. We try to create the consistency so people, when they come in the door, they know what they're going to get and they're going to be happy when they leave. That's the ultimate goal. I think the challenges come back to marketing and how do you get people in the door for the first time. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? You know, I think my biggest lesson in the industry itself is check your ego, right? Because this is an industry where you're riding it high and you feel good. And you can go from the penthouse to the shithouse overnight. And so it's like, check your ego at the door. For me, it's about how can I be of service? The back of the sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now says sharing the love. And it has the Johnny Donuts logo. We are all about sharing the love. And if you put service first, you will succeed. You have to. Service first, and then the quality of the product is highly important. If you're giving people those key things, you can't help but succeed. That's Craig Blum. For more on Johnny Donuts, visit johnnydonuts.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.